to your point, you're absolutely right. It becomes part of your identity. It's something that really, you know, resonates with, pun, you know, pun somewhat intended. It resonates with who you are and, and, and how you approach the world. And yeah, you're absolutely right. It breaks down barriers. You know, I guess in the case of Jericho, literally, but, <laughs> you know, um, but, you know, but, but, but for people from every walk of life, you know, every political persuasion, you know, religion, culture around the world, that trumpet, you know, it's, it, it sounds, you know, that, that the sound of it, the, the, the experience of playing it unites, like you said, you know, it's this point of, of commonality that you can have with another trumpet player around the world. And it's, it's really, you know, quite wonderful in a lot of ways. Warning. This episode contains adult language and adult humor. Since when have trumpet players ever been considered adults? If you are easily offended by these types of conversations, consider switching to the oboe. Welcome to the Trumpet Guru Saying Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Johnson. My guest for this episode is Doug McVeigh. You may not know the name Doug McVeigh, but you will. Doug is a trumpet player with a degree in engineering physics and is the founder of the revolutionary new company, Venture Mouthpieces, which Doug started to bring together his passions for trumpet, automation, and software. Doug's new software, VenCAD, is an absolute game changer in the way players will be able to take precise control over their gear, making the mouthpiece safari so much more productive and affordable. So, pour yourself a big glass, pull up a chair, and let the hang begin. Welcome to this episode of the Trumpet Gurus Hang Podcast, and I am joined by Mr. Doug McVeigh, and Doug is the founder of a new mouthpiece company, and you're probably saying to yourself, my God, do we need another new mouthpiece company? But yeah, you're going to want to hear what he's got to say, because he's got a really interesting story and a really unique approach to uh, the production of mouthpieces and just lots of cool uh, educational stuff that uh, we'll I'm, I'm sure for all you gearheads out there, you're going to love it. So here we are with Mr. Doug McVeigh of Venture Mouthpieces. Doug, what's shaking? Jose, good morning. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm glad to be on your podcast here. Oh, man, it is my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Um, you know, I, like I said, you know, I, I'm like so many trumpet players who, uh, you know, we have this love-hate relationship with uh, gear. You know, we love gear, but we hate gear because we can never seem to find the right thing. And um, it seems like everybody's just doing the same thing. It's a, a new, just a reiteration of, of the same old, same old. And uh, when I came across your company, um, I think it was on the Positive Trumpet Trumpeters Worldwide, uh, uh, the PDW uh, Facebook page. And I saw a post about it. I'm like, wow, this looks kind of interesting. And uh, then I got to talking with uh, Vinny Chichelsky and he was saying, yeah, you got to check this dude out. And as I started to dive into what you're doing, I'm like, wow, this is a really revolutionary approach to, uh, to mouthpiece manufacturing. And then you and I had a little uh, conversation previously uh, prior to this episode. And the stuff that you were telling me just kind of blew my mind since I'm, I'm kind of a, a uh, you know, besides being a gearhead, you know, a little bit of a science geek as well. And so the approach that you're using and, and some of the stuff is just, it's just mind blowing to me. So I just want to dive right in. And um, I, I kind of like with like to start with, with what venture is right now. And then maybe we can, we can backtrack and, and talk about how you got to this point. You know, what are the things that, that, uh, that shaped your view of uh, gear and, and trumpet and what the needs are of the, the trumpet world and, and how this all came together. 
Sure. Yeah. No, I'd love to do that. Um, as you mentioned, Venture is a fairly recent company. We just, you know, were founded a couple of years ago. And I spent most of that time, I spent most of the time building these tools, building the software that underlies it all. And, you know, if there's one point that I like to make, it's about venture is more about software than it is about brass. I mean, sure, the product is in brass, the mouthpiece is in brass, but uh, having spent a lot of time examining different designs from all sorts of different manufacturers and working on some of my own and working with customers to create custom designs, what I have realized is there's nothing new under the sun, right? To, to, to quote the Bible, there, there is nothing new under the sun when it comes to mouthpiece design. There's no magic book, right? So on the one hand, I kind of side with those, the folks on the, on the forums who say, forget mouthpieces, practice more. But we can't entirely forget mouthpieces. We have to have the right gear. So to me, what my passion is, isn't so much saying, okay, this mouthpiece is the perfect one, or you know, one of these three is gonna be perfect for you. Choose it. It's not about a perfect piece of metal. It's about finding the right match of metal for your situation, your chops, your horn, your setup, your tastes, you know, the sound concept you want to build. And making that match, that matchmaking thing is huge. And that's really what I like spending my time and my energy on is doing the work and building the tools uh, for helping people make good matches with mouthpieces and then machining the mouthpieces to, mat to, you know, to, to, to fit that match. Yeah, man, that, that's cool. I mean, it's um, a very unique approach, I think, in terms of, you know, we all hear that thing about, you know, find the right tool for the job. But I think where we, we tend to lose sight is that you need to know how to make the tool. So, or you need to have resources to that. So your background, uh, you know, you, you obviously have a, a trumpet background, but uh, there are other things that have come into play that, that allowed you to be in this position where you're not only able to manufacture the product, but, but also to do the design and, and uh, all of the, the background stuff that has to go on to make this, uh, you know, such a unique venture. Yeah, no, no pun or there you go. There you go. Well, you know, uh, as an engineer, and that's my, my background's engineering, right? So I, I came out of, of school. Uh, I taught public school for a couple of years, and I went to grad school in engineering. And since then, my career has been engineering. And I started working in the semiconductor semiconductor industry, and I uh, built a company uh, that specializes in mechatronics and automation. And playing trumpet that whole time and searching for my own gear. The realization that I made was, as soon as I see something like a mouthpiece, which is which has rotational symmetry, and I start seeing there are different geometries of them, the first thing I want to do is cut it in half and look at a profile, right? Look at a two-dimensional, you know, profile view of it, because that's what we do in engineering. We want to build a part, you know, you design it in CAD, and you want to see cross sections of it, you know, and that's the only way to really, and especially in something like a trumpet mouthpiece where there's these contours that are subtly different from each other staring at them you know into the mouthpiece it's a reflective surface it's hard to really understand how they stack up with one another just by looking you know if you have the same mouthpiece the same exact mouthpiece and you plate it slightly differently and polish it slightly differently it'll look the same if you're staring into the cup so the only way to look at these things is in cross section so i wanted to build tools that will allow people to you know cut the thing in half see what they're playing see what other people are playing and then do the, the design work the same way that mouthpiece designers, most of them are working in CAD now, but I want to share that CAD with everyone else who's, who's searching for mouthpiece so they can see what I'm seeing as a designer and they can understand why the stuff they're playing feels the way that it does and performs the way that it does, build a little bit of that, that knowledge base and then make decisions from there. 
Yeah, I mean, that to me is really, really cool. The idea that, you know, you're able to share with people like me, the consumer, the trumpet player, uh, a look at what the designer or the manufacturer is seeing and to help us to become more educated in that process. And, uh, you know, regardless of whether, I think regardless of whether anybody buys, you know, your mouthpiece or, or any other mouthpiece, just having that level of knowledge to look at something and, and be able to start figuring out for themselves why things may work, one thing may work better than another, or why they may be running into some level of limitations. And I think an informed consumer is, you know, the best consumer, you know, that way, when you go to whoever you're getting your, your gear from, you can say, you know, hey, this is what I need, or this is what I want. And unfortunately, I mean, if, if you're if you're someone like, you know, a Wayne Bergeron or a Bobby Shoe or, you know, any of these, you know, big name guys, yeah, you can go to a manufacturer and have, you know, spend hours and months and thousands of dollars of, you know, R&D money uh, that goes into to building the gear for you. But But for the average player, they don't have that advantage. So, I think this, what you're doing, kind of levels a playing field uh, so that people are, be able, are able to make those informed decisions and have access to, to knowledge that, you know, if you're, if you're a kid in college, the odds of, of your trumpet professor being able to, to give you a class on the manufacturing design of, of mouthpieces and what works and why it works, you're not going to get that. You're just going to get play a box 3C. Yeah, so I, I think this is so this is so great. So uh, what happened in your in your musical past that kind of, you know, got you going in this this direction? Well, the, the story that I like to tell is, you know, seeing Jerry Callett make a mouthpiece when I was 12 years old was the thing that was eye opening for me. And I, I studied with Jerry Callett a little bit. And one of his uh, protégés, Tony Graziosi on Long Island, was my junior high band teacher. Then when I went to high school, he was my private teacher. Um, so early on, I became fascinated by all things Callet, all things Maynard Ferguson. That was my musical go-to. I know I probably don't have to introduce Maynard to all the listeners out there. Lots of people, you know, had that same experience. Even guys, I would add, who ended up on the legit, the classical side of the instrument. Everybody who was alive during that time, who was growing up during that time, be it, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, has a Maynard story, right? Oh, yeah. You, know, you, 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 you did a road trip to see him, you know, with your college buddies and, and you saw him and you, you know, and you met him and he took you out for dinner after, you know, he, he's just a, was such a personal guy, a personable guy. And uh, so, you know, I got on that, that mouthpiece safari early and I always wanted to sound like Maynard. And in a lot of ways, my sound has been built on the bright side of the instrument, the commercial side of the instrument. And that's what I love to play. I certainly have an understanding of, you know, other guys want some, a different tone concept and that's what makes us artists. Not everyone's supposed to sound the same. Right. Um, but, but sort of, chasing that lead sound that 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 high compression you know sparkling sound and going through a few different iterations of mouthpieces Callet mouthpieces Marcinkowitz mouthpieces you know jet tone mouthpieces we've all played the the Maynard Ferguson jet tone with the convex rim some of us loved it some of us hated it those of us who played it don't still play it and there's always a reason why yeah um, but it's an interesting concept so you know I've seen on that side of the horn the commercial side of the horn I, I've uh, you know, playing with some cover bands and some R&B bands. And now a lot of my gigging is, is, is beach music, uh, you know, here in the Carolinas where I live. Um, so, you know, I've, I've been through all sorts of different gear uh, and, you know, playing the instrument, 
acoustically, but then playing it, you know, mic'd up and with all sorts of electric instruments and, you know, guitars and drums and things, um, and all those challenges has driven my gear search over the years. And, uh, you know, the, the whole idea of what I'm doing here that you were describing with, you know, Vencad is the piece of software that I created for all this. It's not, I can't take, take uh, full credit for that idea because the cancel comparator has been out there for a very long, you know, that was a couple of decades ago they came up with that. I don't know, the, don't know the specific year. I'm sure one of your listeners does and can can uh, enlighten me. Um, but it's been out there, and the, the concept of looking at the the, the cups and the backboards, you know, in cross section is not new. Uh, certainly, when people draw them, sketch them, design them, you know, this is a thing that's done. Um, but you know, taking it to the next level is where, where I, what I've been all about. And so as I was doing my automation engineering thing, I guess it was probably eight or nine years ago, I really solidified the idea for Vencad. And I bought my first CNC lathe, and that's still one that's in use now in the company. But it was my side hustle. It was my, you know, downtime gig. And I was messing around with it for, you know, four, five, six years. And, you know, I do a little bit of it here, a little bit of it there. As I was doing my engineering work full time, and as I was, you know, playing on the side, uh, and then finally, just you know, little, you know, two and a half years ago, I just the circumstances worked out for me to take the plunge and say, all right, this is going to be my full time gig. I'm just going to go for it. And I know there's a couple of years of R and D, you know, serious R and D ahead to build this set of tools, because um, it's not just the pretty uh, public facing software; it's the nuts and bolts behind it and all the algorithms that drive it. And the other software for scanning mouthpieces and the other software yet for actually turning them into manufacturing. You know, there's a, the, the devil really is in the details in this business. You know, how do you drill a hole that's this long and keep it straight? That's, it's, it's easier said than done, you know? Yeah. And how do you, you know, making backboards and, you know, there's a lot of machining challenges in a, a trumpet mouthpiece. They're, they're long and slender, as you know, and things that are machined well tend to be short and squat. You know, yeah. So there, there's just, just from the completely nuts and bolts side. There's just like, and honestly, it's a great analogy for trumpet playing too, right? You hear something that inspires you musically, but you can't just press a couple of keys and make it happen. There's years of building an embouchure and building a sound and choosing gear and rudiments, and you know, before you get anywhere near, you know, being able to apply that artistry to the instrument. You know, there's so much. There's so much uh, sausage making. You know, they, they talk yeah. about you know. It goes on behind the scenes as you build your embouchure, build your tools, build your technical abilities before you can present a finished product of music, you know, to to, to the audience. And in the same way, venture has been the same thing. It's been this this constant, you know, R and D grind and writing software and developing tooling and you know, delivering large volumes of compressed air to the machine and you know, doing that in a cost effective way and you know, dehumidifying you know, all these different things you've got to learn that that go along with it that have nothing to do with shiny mouthpieces right like, yeah it, it's like you said man it's the grind it, it's the stuff that goes on behind the scenes and you know it, it's it's funny i mean I'll, I'll definitely get back to that but just to kind of you know saying you know yeah hey man we, we we've got this mutual thing that we we connect on because i yeah i studied with jerry a few times over the years um played a callet horn for i bought one in the mid 80s and uh, played it uh, basically uh, for, you know, probably a good decade or so. And, you know, uh, Jerry was definitely uh, super into 
thinking about the, the design and the concept of, of, of the gear that, that he was playing, you know, and it was, it was a real interesting time, you know, uh, working with him and, and, you know, I would see him at shows every once in a while and, and yeah, he would always remember me, you know, and that was a cool thing. Jerry, Jerry was a, was a really kind of unique guy, you know, and I think he, um, uh, he really touched a lot of people and, and inspired a lot of people with, with his work, both on and off, on the horn playing and teaching and uh, his uh, his design concepts and stuff. I think he was he was kind of a, of a trailblazer. So, you know, that that's kind of cool that we have that that in common. Um, but, you know, when, you, when you're talking about like the uh, the needs and the you know, in like in the entrepreneur world, you know, they, they talk about the importance of, uh, you know, you as you identify your customer, you want to identify their pain point. You know, what what is it that they need? What is it that that they're because there are two things that will move people to make change are either, you know, chasing pleasure or running away from pain. So what is it that, you know, somebody is is suffering with? And then how can you as a, as a business owner provide something that scratches that itch or, or eases that pain? So for trumpet players, obviously, you know, gear and mouthpieces has been one of those things. And kind of as you went through your journey in finding that gear um, and putting stuff together, um, what, what were some of the, the limitations that you saw uh, as, you know, just kind of guys like like most of us that are just, you know, we're, we're working, you know, we're working stiffs, you know, we're we're trying to to just make the best with what we've got. And, uh, you know, don't like I said before, don't always have access to uh, the, the you know, high profile gigs. But, you know, we're still working, you know, and we still need gear that's going to fit our needs. So, you know, what are the things that, that were that were the obstacles for you, the pains that, that made you just go, oh, man, I got to do something about this. Well, so you, you talked about, you know, pleasure versus pain, you know, the idea of a new mouthpiece is a pleasure, you know, like, because it's a, they're, they're, they're not cheap. It's new and shiny. To a horn, they are cheap. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, and you can completely change the character of your horn by plugging in a new mouthpiece. You know, you can completely change your setup and you can get a lot of different things out of one horn you know, or a couple of horns by, you know, having a selection. So there's this like specter of, you know, the, 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 the mirage in the desert of, Oh, you know, if I just found the right one, you know, and it doesn't compared to a horn, it's much cheaper, you know, it's a couple gig, you know, a gig or two worth of money or whatever. And you, you say, and it can really be this lovely thing that, that fits perfectly. You know, it's so personal, it goes against your face. Um, but the pain point in choosing a mouthpiece is, you know, the marketing literature, right? Because, Everyone says, you know, if you play our stuff, your intonation will be spot on, your tone will be brilliant, yet, yet, yet subtle. You know, there's marketing jargon. Um, but what I realized right away was, the, but then how do you choose, right? Because different manufacturers, the, the stuff feels and plays very differently for you. And if you're lucky enough to live near a huge, you know, especially retailer, you know, um, a, a Dylan or a Landris or, you know, one of those types of places, you can go in there and you can test all sorts of gear, you know, and do ABC comparison, you know, even that though is limited because you try it in the shop, but what about when you're practicing at home and what about when you're tired at the end of a gig and how is it going to feel after three hours with a horn on your face? Um, and so the idea of how do I select a thing and then test it well? Um, and if you're, as you said, like most people who may not have easy access to a place like that, that has everything in stock, you know, if you live, somewhere, you know, in, in, in suburban or, or rural America, and you don't have the time or the whatever to make one of these uh, treks or pilgrimages, 
you look in the catalogs, you look on the web, and there's you know lots of manufacturers offering. Let me tell you, lots of good products. You know, I have no. I'm, I'm not going to. I'm not going to tell you. Venture products are magic. Everything else sucks. No, 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 no. I can find something great at every manufacturer that I would love to play on, right? But the problem is, if they're not, if they don't have the stock there available for you to, to test, it is a chunk of change. You've got to invest and send it, and either return it or you know pay some kind of you know reconditioning fee, whatever it is. So it's going to cost time and money and effort, and it's hard to know what you want. Um, and so we have these simple tools for, you know, the, for for comparing. Um, they say, you know, approximately what Bach rim size is a three rim, a five, a seven, you know, and what's the what's the inner diameter of this thing? And you know, I can show you, you know, in the software, the word inner diameter doesn't have a ton of meaning to me because it depends where you measure it. You know. Um, what does the real the rim feel like? Well, it's semi-flat or semi-rounded. Well, compared to what? So to me, that was the real pain point is, you know, um, you, you, you proceed by analogy. It's kind of like a 3C, but with a flatter rim. It's kind of like a, you know, right. 6A, 4A, but not quite so tight. Or it's, you know, and so we know a few different pieces of, 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 of or some different specifications that we talk about, throat size or, or, or uh, inner diameter of the cup. Um, but then it goes to a medium deep cup. Well, again, you know, compared to what? The, the only way to compare these things, you know, accurately and with meaning is to show some more detail. You know, pictures worth a thousand words. And that's what I, that really was what drove me to create venture and everything else. It's not because I think I'm going to be able to come up with magic designs, it's because I want to provide a set of tools that will allow people to, you know, make those choices. Uh, and you mentioned earlier, you know, what if someone goes and buys some other manufacturer's mouthpiece based on what they learn in my software? That's that's fine. <laughs> you know, I don't need every dollar in this industry. I don't want, I couldn't get every, I don't need that. You know, and there are, as I said, lots of manufacturers, small, big, and everyone in between who are making wonderful things. And if you could find the thing that, that's right for you from them and you could use my software to do it, you know, everybody wins. Doesn't cost me anything. The software runs on your computer. It doesn't cost me anything for you to run it on your computer, you know. Um, and if I can provide that better fit and just you know grease those wheels a little bit and reduce that shoe leather cost, as they call it in uh, economics, yeah, you know, the, the the cost of going and pounding the pavement and finding the right thing, you know, everybody wins. Yeah, so. yeah. You know, I've done some um, some shows with uh, Terry Walburton from from Walburton. Uh, mouthpieces and, and products and uh, was uh, working his booth for, for a few years. And it was always interesting to me that, uh, you know, the way people tried out mouthpieces, you know, and regardless of whether it was the people that work with Terry or, you know, uh, my friends that work at, at other manufacturers like, you know, Stomvi or uh, Marcinkowitz or whatever, you know, and, and you're all sitting around the bar talking about stuff after the show. And it's always the same thing. It's like, oh, my God, you know, why do these people do this? You know, why do they come up and they just pick up the mouthpiece and, you know, just try and either blow the loudest double C they can or, you know, you know all these things. It's like, you know, that's not really testing a mouthpiece. And. I kind of started to take it on myself um, to have a, a little more, uh, you know, a, a, my approach to helping people find gear was to ask a whole lot of questions, you know, and, and it was amazing how many people didn't know what they were looking for. Mm. You know, it's like, I want a new mouthpiece. And it's like, okay, why? And that, that question left a lot of people dumbstruck. 
And, you know, it's like, well, you know, and then, and then it becomes this, you know, you're going down a rabbit hole of questions, but it's through the, the deeper the question, the better the question, a lot of times you find your answer, you know, in that, that ultimate question. So it's like, you know, well, what do you, you know, it was usually, what do you not like about what you're playing? You know, what is it, what is it you're looking to change? And then what would freak them out is, well, what do you love about your mouthpiece? What's the one thing that you would not want to compromise on in regards to the mouthpiece? Maybe it's the feel, maybe it's the blow, maybe, you know, it's, yeah, yeah whatever it is. But, you know, starting with the, the those two somewhat diametrically opposed concepts of, you know, what do you really hate about it? What do you really love about it? Okay, now let's go from there and let's try and find a place where everything meets in the middle. So I think that, that I think you're dead on there, Jose. Is, is, is those are those are those are two of the three questions that I ask. So I think you're dead on. And I'll add, to make a proper Venn diagram here, let's let me add a third question for you, which is, you know, tell me about your past relationships. You know, yeah, 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 and, yeah. Your, and your breakups. Right, you know? exactly. And 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 um, John John Kaplan, John uh, talks trumpet, uh, did a uh, you know talked about past mouthpiece breakups, uh-huh. and that's also really instructive. Because every every everything you played for any period of time in the past, you you chose it for a reason and you broke up with it for a reason. And sometimes, just as in in romantic relationships, you come back around. Mm-hmm. You know, something you was been on the shelf uh, for you know for five or ten years suddenly fits you again. So yeah, that's the third question I, I put in there with you know what don't you like about what you're playing? What do you like about what you're playing? And what you know, tell me about your you know your breakups in the past and what drove those. What were you looking for? You know, what was missing? in that and what was good about your new gear that, that brought you here and you know at least you know one or two of your your, your past ones that you your, your long-term relationships if you were uh, yeah. you know um and and what led to their demise and th- those answers together i think are so powerful in helping understand people's as you said pain points and and you know ask that question well, what's next yeah. Well, I, you know, yeah, I'm a huge believer in Venn diagrams. So, uh, you know, that, that whole idea of just, you know, kind of find, trying to find that sweet spot, you know, it's like, you know, even when we talk about playing, you know, we want to find that, that sweet spot where we have the balance of the brilliance of sound, because even if you're a, uh, a classical player and you're trying to get that huge sound, if there's no brilliance, if there's no highs to that, then, then there, it doesn't sound like a trumpet. It sounds like a tub. You yeah, know? exactly. And and if if you've got too much brilliance in your sound, then you know, and there's and no shrill, core, right. yeah. you know. So it's like you you've got to find that that right level of projection. You have to find the right level of compression. So all those things have to come together. And when you find that spot where everything is together, then that's when you get that beautiful, effortless sound, regardless of what you're doing. And and I think that the mouthpiece. Maybe I guess one of the reasons why we, we do think about the mouthpiece so much is that that's our first point of contact. You know, that that's our that's our uh, that's what joins us with the horn. So if that is not a good fit, if that's not a good relationship, then everything going forward is going to suffer as a result to that. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, man, we could talk about mouthpiece just the the uh <laughs> the nature of the mouthpiece and and the uh the metaphysical aspects of it and relationships and but um i do want to uh, ask you just i mean like a, a couple technical questions because course, like you yeah. know we, we're talking about like things like you know inner diameter and and, and bite and you know everybody's got these different terms you know you hear yeah. the uh, alpha angle and this and that and and it's so 
uh, if you don't know what someone's talking about, then you don't know what they're talking about. And that's one of the things I love about uh, the VanCAD. Like you said, the, the cancel comparator, that was a big thing. I loved, you know, I can sit and play with that for ages. But the the one limitation with the, the cancel comparators is it simply was that. It was a comparator. You could look at things, but uh, there's no level of ability to manipulate the variables and, and seeing how things change. So when you started to percolate this idea of, of VenCAD and the ability to then uh, manipulate that data a little bit uh, more freely, giving people the, the ability to do that. Um, when you first started rolling it out, what was the, the general consensus of what you were doing? Was it like, you know, man, this is great, or man, you're crazy? Well, I mean, as you said, you know, gear, gearheads, trumpet players, you know, uh, something new is always interesting, right? It's always worth checking out. Um, so I think people taking a, you know, a little bit of a wait and see approach, like, yes, this sounds really interesting. And they've seen it and they're like, yeah, this is, you know, this is very cool. And then right away, they want to know what can it do for me, you know? And so that's where, you know, that's, that's, that's where the rubber meets the road is, you know, what can it really do for me? Um, you know, pe people are, I'll tell you, people have been very encouraging in the industry, you know, because they realize it's a big industry, you know, it's not like I'm going to suddenly corner the market. So, you know, even other manufacturers have been very interested to see what I'm, what I'm doing. Um, and I've, you know, had good relationships with them and I've even, you know, done work for people, some design work and some, some manufacturing work, you know, um, because of the speed at which I can scan a thing, make a tweak and, you know, then make one or 50, um, so this, you know, this set of tools has been very useful for, you know, even other manufacturers to check out and certainly, you know, members of the public. Um, so yeah, people, it, it's been a really welcoming industry. Um, of course, there's also the dark side, you know, the, the, the flame wars that go on. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if, if you think that Peter Pickett and I are going to get into a fight, uh, you're wrong. It, like Peter Pickett and I had a great, you know, two hour Zoom where we just talked shop and we talked mouthies and we dove in and we just, you know, nerded out with it. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I realize there's a lot of sometimes vitriol and hatred online about all sorts of things, gear related, Trump related, whatever, politics related, you know. But if, like I said, if you're waiting for, for Peter Pick and I to have a, a, a steel cage death match, you know, you're going to be waiting because, you know, he, I consider him a friend. You know, he's a, he's a good guy. Yeah. Um, and he makes great stuff, as do many other, you know, really, we, we have a great relationship with, you know, with Greg Blackmouth pieces and, you know. And all and, and and everyone I talked to has been just you know very supportive, welcoming, you know, interested to hear new ideas, hear ideas. So, you know, this isn't Coke versus Pepsi where you know every every sale lost by Coke goes to Pepsi. Yeah, you know, there's a lot out there for everybody. And as I said, if I can help elucidate and educate and edify the customer, and they think that 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 a Warburton model is just right for them, then they should go to Terry and, and buy it because I know you know Warburton makes lots of great stuff. Yeah, you know? well, and and that was one of the great things like for me kind of getting behind the scenes with uh some of the the manufacturers and the dealers that um you know you you did have these camps you know like you know i'm a bot guy i'm a yamaha guy i'm you know whatever and it was almost um it was combative to a degree you know it was like you know we draw our lines in the sand and and you know our product is great everybody else's product sucks but then you start to hang with the manufacturers, the the owners and the reps and stuff like that. And they're all like, dude, I don't know what the problem is. You know, we're, we're just all in this together and, and, you know, everybody's helping each other out. And somebody comes up with kind of a, 
I mean, certainly you want to keep some trade secrets, you know, course, but, yeah. but, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, I, I know some of the guys that, that would be like, you know, Hey, I'm having this manufacturing problem and they would call someone else up who maybe figured it out. And, and everybody just, they want the trumpet world to benefit. They want trumpet players to have the best gear possible. And however that turns out, it's more about getting the information to people and, and getting the quality up because if we can have more people playing trumpet, then it benefits everybody. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's like, yeah, the, the, the manufacturers, they all get along and, and the, it's, it's the, the users that are causing the, yeah. all the controversy. You know, yeah, that, you know, and, and, uh, I look at it, I mean, maybe it's, it's too, you know, metaphysical and frou-frou and what was, uh, you know, sort of, philosophical but i look at it as the trumpet is is especially the trumpet it's good medicine right yeah. uh, in the more holistic term you know right like it's good for what else and and a lot of like internal turmoil and conflict and whatever like when you when you play a trumpet music in general sure but trumpet in particular because it's so visceral it's, it's this physical you know full body type of situation a lot of the stressors of life can be made that much better and, you know, so much pleasure can be derived from playing your trumpet, right? And so it's a time that can be very healing, right? Very empowering. And when you're doing that stuff, when you're getting the, the garbage of everyday life and stress out through the horn, you know, well, there's garbage bubbles up. And sometimes it gets misdirected here and there. And, you know, I think that, that that's why people have such passion around the instrument and so much. Sometimes it turns into nasty disagreement, but just as often, if not more often, it turns into beautiful music. Yeah. So... You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's this nexus of really, you know, powerful emotion and, and, and stuff going on. Yeah. Um, well, you know, it, it's, it's such a part of all, you know, if, if you're a trumpet player, you know, and if you're not a trumpet player and you're listening to this podcast, you probably feel like you're in the wrong place, but that's okay. You know, we'll, we'll love you anyway. Um, but you know, there's, there's, there's certainly something about it. you know, if you've been playing for any length of time, but especially for those of us who've been playing, you know, for a number of decades, um, you know, it, it becomes part of who you are. And, you know, it, it's, to me, this is what I love about doing this podcast is it, it's a chance to talk to so many people uh, from all over the world who have this one fundamental experience that is shared and yeah. no matter you know what you look like what uh, what other things you believe or have experienced we have at least that one point of commonality and then i to me that's kind of like the key to life is to try to search it for anyone you meet to try and search for the one point that you can connect on and then build your relationship from that as opposed to trying to always search for the one, the, the, the things that you don't agree on and then use that as the basis of why you don't want to be with, you know, associated with that person. You know, there are a lot of people who play golf a lot, you know, and there are a lot of people who, you know, do all sorts of different activities, you know, um, play, they play guitar, whatever, you know, and the percentage of them that feature the golf club or the guitar on their Facebook profile picture, some do, sure. Some yeah. post pulls with their golf club or an action shot and hitting a, a tee shot or, you know, with their guitar or whatever. But the percentage of trumpet players who pose with the instrument or their Facebook, you know, profile picture is some, some flavor of them holding instrument, playing an instrument, performing, whatever, you know, uh, is astoundingly high. You know, and as I'm meeting more people in the community, as I, you know, connect with them on Facebook, that kind of thing, 
you see this, right? You know, you know, you probably have a Facebook feed full of that. And yeah, to your point, you're absolutely right. It becomes part of your identity. It's something that really, you know, resonates with, pun, you know, pun somewhat intended. It resonates with who you are and, and, and how you approach the world. And yeah, you're absolutely right. It breaks down barriers. You know, I guess in the case of Jericho, literally, but, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, but, you know, but, but, but for people from every walk of life, you know, every political persuasion, you know, religion, culture around the world, that trumpet, you know, it's, it, it sounds, you know, that, that the sound of it, the, the, the experience of playing it unites, like you said, you know, it's this point of, of commonality that you can have with another trumpet player around the world. And it's, it's really, you know, quite wonderful in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. Um, you know, so let's, let's talk a little bit more about the, like the science behind uh, yeah, the, what you've been doing. Um, you know, we, we were saying, you know, there, there are these different kind of uh, this nomenclature that's been created uh, that doesn't in many ways doesn't mean much uh, outside of uh, the own you know, the personal camp that you're in. So when you're talking about uh, concepts uh, in terms of measurement and yeah. characteristics, um, what what are the main points that, you know, if you're, you're educating, which is, you know, obviously a big part of what you're doing, you're educating people on not only the components in the, the mouthpiece and the construction of the mouthpiece, but then how that relates to the production of sounds. Um, so what are some of the, those key components, the terminology that, that you use uh, that people need to be aware of and, and think about in terms of uh, how that's working for them and the gear that they're using now or that you're looking to move towards? Right. So, um, you know, uh, you, you mentioned, you know, inner diameter and inner bite, right? Those are important. And, and, and maybe now is a good time to, I don't know if it's a good time to, to switch on some Vencad. Um, I know some of your listeners do not have the video on, some do. So I'm, I'm not going to go too video heavy, but at least a, a few words about a, a few of these technical points. Um, and I'll, you know, talk about what the, the, the ones you brought up and I'll throw out a couple more that I think are things that we should start thinking more about as a community. Uh, and and t start talking about more uh, that don't get mentioned a lot. All right, let's do it. Um, so yeah, let's let's go over to the uh, to the to the to the screen and let's let's pull up some something you know. I was going to say bo bog standard, but box standard. Let's look at a three C. Everyone everyone's at least put one on their face before, right? So this is a this is a this is a three C here. Um, and uh, for those listening uh, without video, we're looking at a cross-section of a 3C. <laughs> and uh, right away, you'll see the dot, the, the, the brown dot here. And that is one of the things that I think we should start talking about that we don't talk about, and that's the high point diameter, right? Or as I call it, the tangent diameter. But everyone talks about the inner rim diameter, right? And, and this is where I might, might say, okay, you see the yellow cursor there? Yeah. Where do you want to measure that inner diameter? There's a lot of variation here. Do we measure it? I mean, the biggest it could possibly be is where the high point diameter is. Right. If we put it on a table, it pretty much touches at one single point on a perfectly flat granite table. And anything beyond there, anywhere in here, is that the diameter? Is this the diameter? Is this the diameter? You know, a lot of people say, oh, right at the inner bite. Mm -hmm. So I guess, you know, that's where uh, uh, Gary Radke calls it the, the alpha angle, the angle that the, that the surface makes. Um, with, uh, you know, with the vertical. Um, so a perfect ledge would be a zero degree alpha angle, 
you know, and uh, a Cat Anderson mountain, you know, something with no cup cutting it is a, is, a, is a 90 degree alpha angle. So, you know, what is your alpha angle? Well, where is that point? Is it that you measure the alpha angle and that you measure, and typically that's the point at which you measure, you stretch your tape measure across and measure the inner diameter. Is it here? Is it here? Is it here? Is it here? You know, there's a lot of options. Right. And it varies wildly what you, what you end up with as that inner diameter, depending where you, and I might, I might add that I think it depends on the, on the player. If you have a lot of lip engagement into the cup, you experience a smaller, you, your, your lips roll down the cup further before, you know, before you're, and, and you experience a smaller inner diameter than someone with a really straight up and down type of setup, compact setup is, is going to experience it. Someone who plays rolled out kind of Maggio style might be, you know, a little more flesh in here. They're experiencing the inner diameter down here. Someone, you know, with a more traditional setup might experience it up, you know, up, up here somewhere. So this matters because you can get a, a very different uh, answer for that depending where you measure it. So uh, that inner bite is somewhere here, depending where you experience it, that inner diameter. The high point diameter, that's a little bit more uh, um, uh, sort of objective because you can, you know, profile that wherever that point is, that, that's, that's in metal. Right. So it's, not, it's irrelevant where you experience the mouthpiece. And that's something where you can have two uh, mouthpieces that have a different high point that feel very different, you know, um, that not, not a whole lot is different about them. You just shift that rim contour around a little more. If we shifted this high point a little bit, all of a sudden the cup would start to feel bigger, even though, you know, if we don't move that bite point around and we just move the high point around, you know, um, the cup sees the same volume, the same size and everything, the same diameter at that point. But, but based on where that hot spot hits our chops, that's where oh, you know, I have some scar tissue there, or I have a tooth sticking out there, or, a, you know, so people won't talk about that tangent diameter or high point diameter, you know, but I think that's important too, because you can make something that's very, very, very similar um, that just moves that high point around that feels and sits on the chops and hits that hot spot or misses that hot spot, you know, yeah. and that's where, um, you know, if someone comes to me and says, oh, I love this mouthpiece, but for some reason, even though it's the same cup size nominally as the one I'm playing now, it just, it wasn't comfortable. It hit, you know, I have some scar tissue. I have a weird tooth, whatever. It just never sat on my face right. Immediately, I'd start to th say, oh, that was the only thing wrong with it? Let's look at it. And then I might move that high point around a little bit and and, and start having some discussions like that. Yeah. If that makes sense. So high point something that we, they don't talk about, but they should. Um, inner diameter, we talk a lot about. We talk about cup depth. But from an acoustics perspective, what seems to matter most in every calculation that I run is not the depth, you know, and by the way, what is that cup depth to, you know, where, where it becomes a throat, I measure here, you know, some people, I think Park measures, they have some, or is it James Arnoux that does the, the ball bearing sitting in it, you know, different ways of, of saying how deep is that cup? Sure, the more this brown line shifts to the right, it's deeper. Yes, we agree with that. But what is the depth of this cup? Um, so, um, like, for example, if I, if, I, if, I, if I took a cup and made an identical copy of it, Right, it ends here. So are you seeing? We're seeing from here to there. That's the depth of the cup, you know. But if I made it much bigger, like this, now in white, is that a deeper cup? I think so, even though it ends at the same point. Right. If the walls are fatter in some sense, 
it's deeper, even though it ends at the same point. So the, to me, cup depth and cup diameter are less, are, I think we should think about those less. And we should think more about things like high point diameter and also volume. Right, right. Acoustically, volume matters. And, and as much as we want to talk about efficient reflection of the sound back to the chops, okay, but acoustically, from a resonance perspective, and the trumpet is all about resonance, what matters most is volume, overall volume. And very few manufacturers quote and say, you know, the volume of this cup is so many cubic centimeters or so many cubic inches or cubic millimeters or whatever unit. Um, nobody says that. We talk about millimeters or inches of diameter. Mm-hmm. Um, we never talk about how many cubic inches fit in this cup. But that can be measured pretty darn precisely. And that's a good place to start talking about what, you know, what is a truly bigger cup? You know, well, when you get past the inner diameter and how it feels in your chops, like how does it support your chops? You know, you can have a, a narrow cup that's deep and has a lot of volume. You can have a wide cup that's shallow and doesn't have a lot of volume. So once you find the rim uh, setup that, that makes your chops vibrate, what is that volume? How much volume is, 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 is encompassed before you hit the point at which it becomes a cylinder, a throat? Um, and that number, you know, I think about that a lot. You know, I think about that an awful lot. And we should quote that. We should talk about it, you know. Uh, probably if you ask somebody, you know, I mean, everyone, everyone knows what a cubic centimeter looks like, or you can kind of picture it maybe from elementary school, you have the little cubes, right? right. What does a cubic centimeter look like? Uh, or you can picture what a cubic inch looks like, you know, what an inch, you know, you met a cubic inch, you know, size of a, you know, um, well, how many cubic, if you ask the average person, the average trumpet player, how many cubic inches is an average trumpet mouthpiece is uh, in the cup? Is it one cubic inch, half a cubic inch, a tenth of a cubic inch? You know, and most people wouldn't know that right off. The, I mean, I know this because I think about it an awful lot. But if you think about that, these tiny changes we make, order of magnitude, how many cubic inches? Um, and I, I would love to see manufacturers start quoting that. And for the record, for those who are who, who can't see the screen here, um, we I I I I figure it in in cubic inches because uh, inches are you know we're here in America. The software actually does change over to do metric if you like, you change the settings. But 0.068 cubic inches is a 3C. So a little less, you know, less than a tenth of a cubic inch is a typical trumpet mouthpiece. A tiny one is 0.04, a giant one is like 0.09, and within there is all of trumpet hood. <laughs> okay. A little bit of- so, so four hundredths of a cubic inch, it's, it seems kind of small, and it is compared to a cubic inch, but that's that's the size. Um, so a little bit of an interest. So, yeah, well, well, you know, you ask the question, you know, how do I feel about, uh, you know, uh, uh, the terminology and stuff? You know, if I look at something, so I'm looking at 3C here. If I pull up something with a, uh, that I know has a flatter rim, like a, like a shilky, I don't know, um, 14A4 or 13A4A. That's a little bit smaller mouthpiece, but maybe if we pull up, pull up a box, it's more comfortable. But, you know, the flatness of the rim right away, you know, which one feels flatter in your chops? You can see right away that tan one is flatter. Mm-hmm. It feels flatter. It's a wider base that's going to be on your face. You don't need to use any terminology to describe that. You can just see it, right? A picture's worth a thousand words. Um, so... You know, like to me, uh, I like talking about, you know, looking at the picture, adding that terminology of the high point diameter or the tangent diameter, 
um, and adding the concept, at least when we're talking about cups, of cup volume, more than diameter, more than more than than depth. I like talking about volume because you can have you know very different volumes and have the same diameter and the same depth. It just depends on how much do the walls bow out. You know, and so that's an instant, uh, you know, something that could be easily co computed and circulated. Um, and I think that's something that we should add to the conversation. That's cool. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, so let me ask you a quick question. When, we, when you talk about, uh, talk about volume, um, is there any empirical evidence in terms of uh, the uh, a direct correlation between volume size and, uh, you know, the, the resonant frequencies that, you know, the, the mouthpiece function, you know, primarily in? I mean, so in other words, is, is a smaller volume mouthpiece going to provide a more brilliant sound or increased compression or as uh, a deeper uh, that, so that and, and that, that, that's a good question and in a word i will say yes the smaller the volume sort of uh you know the acoustics say the small you know everything else being equal and if you, if you imagine uh that example i just showed where i sort of left everything about the couple the same but just popped the walls out a little bit mm -hmm. everything else about that mouthpiece would have remained the same right the backboard right. the overall like, everything's the same i just went in there and scooped out some volume um and made it bigger making it bigger you know uh, all else being equal, you know, will 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 darken things, squelch some of the higher overtones, you know, acoustically destabilize the the, the upper register somewhat. In exchange for that, you know, that darker, more more focus on the fundamental. And the reason, you know, come the, the metric that I've started computing, and we mentioned in our, in our call the other day, uh, is the, the 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 pop frequency of the mouthpiece, right? Right. Which is if if there's one acoustical. Thing that, that this is a measurement I've been pushing um, that encompasses, you know, everything from the, the cup size volume to the throat diameter and the length at which it stays uh, cylindrical, the backboard, everything all put together. If I could have one number to describe it all, and it's, it's not enough, but, you know, if there's if, uh, in engineering, in engineering, we call it a figure of merit, right? Like some catch all number, the ratio of this to that, or, you know, that's the number that I would propose as the best harmonic uh, description of the mouthpiece that can tell you the most about how it will resonate in the horn, how it will influence the timbre of your sound. If I, if I only have one measurement to give you, that's what I would give you. Okay. Can, can you talk about the pop, uh, pop frequency sure. a little bit? So, you know, and if you read some, some of the, I have my here, my Fundamentals of Musical Acoustics by Bernard, uh, that's a good thick bit of bedtime reading. Uh, if you like physics and acoustics and instruments, uh, then that's, a, that's something you should read and I should spend more time uh, than I do with it. But uh, basically, if you take a mouthpiece, I'm trying to find some stuff here in my desk, right? So if you take a mouthpiece and you, with the heel of your hand, pop it, there's a frequency that comes out. And if you, if you, if you try this with different mouthpieces, well, you can guess if I, if I use a tuba mouthpiece, it's gonna go lower. Boom, 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 right 
and uh, but different trumpet mouthpieces all over the place. Oh, very different. Bum, 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 bum. That's about a half a, half a pitch or a, a semitone lower. Bum, 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 bum. Bum, 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 bum. Right? Bum, bum, bum. That's, you know, semitone. And you get them, you know, in trumpet world, you, there's about a major third of difference between the highest and lowest that I've found. That yeah. frequency, when you hit it, you know, where it resonates, if you like, or uh, when you give it one impulse, which is the acoustic term for it, um, predicts how it will couple into the acoustic system of the trumpet as a whole. Um, and in general, the higher that pitch is, the more st the more stability there is in the upper register, um, and the more that it will emphasize the shimmer and the higher overtones of the trumpet, all things being equal. So, you know, higher popping frequency usually means brighter overall, lower generally means a bit darker overall. Higher generally means that the, 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 you know, you can still play the same notes with a lower popping frequency mouthpiece, but they're less, the slots for those notes are less big, generally speaking, you know. Of course, this also plays on intonation. And so, you know, depending on the specifics of the horn you put it in and the specifics of everything else, you know, the, the air temperature, everything else, uh, you know, your intonation, how, if you, if middle C is in tune, how sharp, flat, or dead on is your high C? How sharp, flat, or dead on is your low C? That that octave spacing, you know, and there it's it's more into well, you know, that gets into the, the specific horn you have, the specifics, you know, acoustic or, or the, the frequency locations of its slots, and how this you know matches. It's not higher isn't just you know higher. It's it also has been then how does it overlap with, you know, the particular horn, um, but as a as a general you know thing, yes. Brighter is, is higher popping frequency, darker is lower, you know, easier access to the upper or more stable upper register is higher. And that's why, you know, why are, why do lead trumpet mouthpieces have tiny little cups and, and symphonic ones have big cups? Because, you know, that leads to the popping frequency being the way it is. Um, you know, um, symphonic mouthpieces have bigger throats. A bigger throat will lower the popping frequency, all things being equal. How do you make, how do you do that? All things being equal, you drill out the throat in the same mouthpiece bigger, it will lower the popping frequency, somewhat darken the sound and remove some of those higher shimmer, you know, which you may want to do if you're too, if you're too bright, you drill out the thing, you know, you may feel less back pressure sort of pneumatically, but also you will notice that a little bit of that shimmer go, you know, it's a little bit darker. Um, and that's pretty, you know, demonstrable acoustically, you know. Um, so smaller cups, you know, higher popping frequency, bigger throats, lower popping frequency, um, and interestingly, larger backboards, right? You scoop out the backboard, that raises the popping frequency, not lowers. So the cup getting larger volume lowers the popping frequency, the backboard getting larger volume raises the popping frequency. And the reason is they're on either side of that constriction, the throat, right? Stuff that's up, upstream of the throat functions acoustically one way, and stuff, stuff downstream of the throat functions acoustically the other way. In okay, so my mind is officially blown with that. So, uh, that oh, and, and, well, and, and by the way, this is not new knowledge. I have not yeah. invented anything here. I'm not. I'm mm -hmm. not some kind of like, um, right? So think about this, right? You like a three C. Let's say you know. Let's say you're the guy who you know likes that three C for your you know primary. You know, you're you're that the high school, college, whatever player. You know, you've upgraded from you know whatever. You, you, to, to your 3C, and now you're playing in, you know, wind ensemble with your 3C, right? And then you pick up a piccolo trumpet, 
And what's the first thing they hand you with it? A three E, right? Well, the, the Bach, Bog standard uh, 3C comes with a certain backdoor, certain cup volume. The 3E has a shallower cup, which leads to a smaller cup volume. Right. And the backbore, bigger or smaller, it's bigger. It's much bigger. The standard Bach backbore for the 3E is the 117, which is enormous. You know, picture, why am I talking at you when I could be showing you? Um, there is a 3C in brown, and I'll bring up a Bach 3E in the lighter color here in a second. And there it is. All right. So look here, you see the 3E, they're similar. Actually, the 3E has a much more gentle rim, interestingly. Mm -hmm. felt it. I find it kind of hard to play. A lot of people do. Uh, if, if, you, if you're wondering why the 3E is so hard to play and so easy to bottom out, it's because this roll on, you see how gentle that curve is right here? Mm -hmm. Right. There's not a, there's a sharper bite. And this is, you know, the, the term bite or alpha angle. It's so obvious here when you just look at this, no words are required. You know, this feels sharp. You know, it, this supports you farther into the cup and there's a sharper drop off. This rolls in gently and it's easy to just keep rolling down and bottom out. Um, you know, what feels like bottoming out is really just sort of this, uh, you know, this very gentle roll in. Um, but uh, very obviously, it's much shallower cup, and you can imagine that if we compute the volume, the volume of that three E cup is much smaller. Right. And if we, in fact, look at it. You know, 0.068 was where we had the three C. 0.055 is where we have the three E. Right. So it's you know twenty percent or whatever, twenty five percent less volume. And the backbore, they stay similar, but then the the three E kind of bows out here and has a lot more space in it. What is the upshot of that? The back, the backboard volume here is a lot bigger, and the pop frequency. Look, the the three E pop frequency is eight oh five, and the three C pop frequency is seven fifty eight. What's doing that? It is partially the, the the shallower cup and partially the bigger backboard. It, this you may know if you've ever looked at the the rear end of a of a the shank end of a three E. You know, it looks like it's a very thin little bit of metal that's left on that shank. It's like a very fragile looking thing because that backboard is so much bigger. Why is it bigger? It's made for higher keyed trumpets like piccolo. Um, so that's why 3E is a, or a 7E, a 7E, box 7E has the same 117 backboard in it. That's a very common piccolo mouthpiece. Bring that up here. We got one here somewhere. Or 7EW with a slightly wider rim, slightly more comfortable. Um, but um, again, that bigger backboard tends to lead to, uh, you know, in this case, because it's got a, it's tighter in here. That's that's not got the 117. It's not with the 117. Ten and a half. Where was it? So 7E3. Well, I don't know. Three. Well, the 3E I know has it. That that 7E doesn't, that doesn't have it. Where is it? Maybe the 10 and a half. Oh, here, the 10 and a half, one and a half. Uh, this 10 and a half has the 117 backboard, the bigger backboard. Um, and that will have a slightly higher pop frequency. So the 3E, uh, you see that here, the cup volumes actually, this cup volume ends up being in this particular uh, model. This, this, this in tan has actually a slightly higher cup volume because it's slightly deeper but it still has a slightly higher pop frequency because the backboard opens up. So yeah, the more open backboard will give you a higher pop frequency. The smaller cup will give you a higher pop frequency and a tighter throat will give you a pop frequency, higher pop frequency. 
And that is why, as compared to, you know, a Bach 3C, which a lot of people play with a bigger than 27 throat, people will play, play a piccolo on a 7E, smaller cup, typically with a stock 27 throat and a bigger 117 backboard because it stabilizes that upper register, which is why you play the piccolo to begin with. Okay. Man. So that's, you know, that, that explains, and Bach knew, you know, Vincent Bach knew this 100 years ago. You know, whether he had the same math then or not, I don't know, or whether it was more trial and error. But, you know, I'm not the only guy that knows. Lots of people in the industry know this. Lots of people know acoustically more than I do. Um, But what I want to do is provide these tools to enable people to see what's going on, measure what's going on, report back what's going on, and then make a choice, you know, uh, or customize something. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, that's the key to me is, uh, like I was saying earlier, it's about, you know, the questions. And, you know, if, if you're sitting down with someone, uh, you can be led through those questions. But I, I love the, the ability to sit and play and to start to see uh, to see the answers form in front of my eyes, you know. And, you know, if I'm looking at, uh, you know, I, because I'm one of those people that the uh, the Bach 3C, uh, that kind of size mouthpiece tends to work for me. I don't, I don't play a Bach three C's, but, but things that are comparable or listed as comparable, those tend to work well for me. And, uh, you know, like the three D I can play the three E not so much and looking at, okay, well, well, what is it when I can look at it and say, well, what, what are the similarities? Okay. Those are the things that I'm, that I'm going to like. And then what are the, the things that are different in, then start to identify the the different things, whether it's the high point or if it's that that inner diameter, the the, the bite, or you know, looking at the cup volume and things like that. Those are the things that I can start to to wrap my head around, and then figure out if it's something that I need to change. And then when I need to change, I I know what I need to change, not just kind of like shooting in the dark and and you know grabbing whatever mouthpiece you know is on sale. So. Uh, I, I love that. Yeah, you know, I love the idea of educating people and giving them tools. And, and when you give them tools and give them power to to be in charge of what they're doing, you know, you're, you're not at you're you're, you're always going to be somewhat at the mercy of the instrument. But uh, let, let's let's take a little bit of our power back on that. Oh, yeah, I completely agree with that. You know, the, you know, that 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 empowerment, you know, is, is a big thing for me. Um you know, because, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard enough. The instrument's already pretty they, they made it pretty darn hard when they invented it. Um, but, uh, yeah, the extent we can demystify and, yeah, start to, you know, as you said, you know, take some of that power back and, and, and you know, uh, heck, you know, think about the the, tr- the the amateur visualizer, right? You've seen those things where the student, uh, I mean, who knows how that's going to survive in the, the post-COVID era. That's true. You know, spit all over your trumpet teacher, but, you know, you there's this you, you want to see what's going on you know inside the cut you know what's going on with someone's chops well you also want to see what's going on with someone's mouthpiece cut it in half and you know get in there and 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 and, and delve after it and uh, you know people talk about mouthpiece safaris like it's a negative thing like you know oh just decide what you're getting and then just practice on it well you know i'm not you know, diminishing the importance of practice it's obviously our cornerstone um but look you know, being on a safari, I think is kind of fun. I, you know, went to South Africa with my girlfriend a couple of years ago. We had a great time. We took lots of pictures. So, you know, um, there's no shame in going on a mouthpiece safari because it's a journey. Like the whole point of this instrument is it's a journey. You know, yeah. if you think you're going to continue to improve and change as a player over time, I think, you know, I think we all can and we all should and we all will. Um, but 
that doesn't make sense then that your needs for equipment will change as you change as a player. You know, your musical taste change, your face changes, your teeth move a little bit, you age, you, all these things happen. It's not, it's no wonder that you might want something different than you wanted two years ago or five years ago. Right. Um, and there's, you know, I think there, there's no, there should be no shame in that. And the tools should be available to support that, you know, when we need to, you know, after a few years, if it feels kind of stale or it feels like it's just not working for us the way it did three years ago. Well, in the last three years, five years, have you changed your playing at all? I, I hope so. You know, I hope you've evolved as an artist, as a, a musician, as a technician, all those things. Well, if you have, then maybe it's time to, you know, change your equipment a little bit and, and freshen things up. Yeah. And I, I think that that's absolutely spot on. And, uh, you know, one of my my biggest pain points in terms of the way trumpet is taught uh, and the the attitude of so many people in in the trumpet world is that, you know, you find one thing and, and you stick with it. And then that becomes the dogma, which is, you know, passed on from teacher to student. And, you know, you need to pay play this mouthpiece on this horn because that's you know, that's the way it is. You know, if you want to, if you want to be a symphonic player, you need to play this Bach one and a half C in this, you know, in this Bach horn. Um, but I think that, like you said, everybody changes and yeah, you know, first of all, everyone is unique. So, you know, the, I like the, the thing about the high point, you know, depending on, on the structure of your mouth, uh, you know, the fleshiness of, of your lips, the, the, the density of the musculature, uh, the shape of the teeth, the high point on teeth, you know, all of those things are going to uh, affect how a mouthpiece feels and how it plays for you. And then as you make changes, as your your body changes, you know, you have, uh, you know, going from a, a high school student to a, a, a college student, you know, your body is going through a number of changes. Oh, yeah. And, sure. you know, it, it's not saying that changing equipment is the the magic bullet, but it has to be put into consideration. And so you, part of a balanced diet, you know, you need protein and you need carbs and you need fats yeah. and you, you know, part of your balanced diet as a trumpet player, you have to select the right equipment for you. You know, that might be at the top of the food pyramid. It's not something you're doing every day, right. you know, but, but at the same time, if you just ignore it completely, you're not, you might be missing a vital nutrient that would you know let you perform better than you otherwise would. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and it's, it, I think so much of it is tied into our uh, innate, desire or, or, uh, you know, the way we love, uh, consistency, we love comfort. We love the known. Uh, and you know, when you find something that feels good and it, you know, you've gotten consistent results on, uh, you tend to think, okay, well, I can just continue doing things that way. And for a degree you can do that, but there, but once things start to change and something, when one thing changes, all things have to change in the system. It's just a question of how much do they change and, and how far down the, the chain do you go? So, you know, if you lose weight, uh, you may need to go to a small, a slightly smaller or slightly, slightly larger cup. Uh, you could certainly keep playing the same thing, but there's going to mean that you're going to have to change your approach ever so slightly to compensate for yeah. the other changes that, that have occurred in the system. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're spot on. You know, and and yeah, all these changes can can trigger the you know the the the, the right time to go on a little safari of your own, and uh, I'll show you. You were just mentioning uh, uh, high point. That's a one and a half C, and I've moved the high point and pretty much nothing else. The inner diameter is still the same, but just the rim gets a little bit you know 
more gentle here and, and, and moves a little bit of density out here. And now you can imagine a situation where a student with a tooth that's, that's, a, that's, that's, that's poking right here suddenly might be a little bit happier with a high point, just a little, you know, subtle change, right? Your de you know, your, as you said, your weight changes, your, you know, your teeth migrate over time. All these things, you know, have a solution maybe, you know, to ease the discomfort a little bit or just, you know, ease that, that interface. And, you know, that's what, that's what I want to sell is the ability to see these things, know these things and tweak them as they, you know, as the need arises. Yeah. Well, let me ask, do you have the same approach? I mean, obviously, this is a very, you know, uh, thoughtful and analytical approach to, you know, the design. Uh, do you have the same approach to your playing? Are you are you one of those? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, so so I, I will, you know, I am I am not a world renowned player, right? You know, I'm, I'm not a, a world uh, class player, but I, like to, I consider myself a regional class player. You know, okay. I, I, I play some, you know, regionally, you know, touring acts and things. Um, you know, and my, my, my stock and trade, my specialty is upper register and, you know, lead stuff and commercial stuff. And I like to think that my abilities when it comes to range and power endurance are pretty darn awesome, given the amount of practice time that I have to devote to it. Um, and I think that, you know, you know, I can play a three or four hour gig and I still have double A's and, and, and you know, at the end of it. Uh, and that, you know, that's, that's, that's pretty, pretty, pretty solid, I think. Uh, considering, you know, I, I don't have three hours that are four hours a day that I pour into this instrument. And right. so um, actually a lot of the, the amateur dog, dogma, you know, when it comes to, to if we're playing, if we're talking about, you know, technique and amateur as opposed to, you know, uh, you know, musicality. But um, I think a lot of the amateur dogma focuses on things that, you know, just, just we focus a lot of energy on, uh, you know, inner diameter when I say other things like high point and volume matter in, in, in cup, you know, in mouthpieces, people talk a lot about, you know, the mouthpiece position or, you know, which way we stack the chops or that sort of thing. And to me, I think very differently about it. And yeah, it's very analytical. And I think uh, very much in terms of physics, you know, the physics of playing. Uh, so yeah, I, I, you know, I actually have, a, I, I've given a talk a couple of times on range power and endurance, you know, to, to, you know, given little master classes and things, um, colleges, high schools, and, uh, you know, my, my approach actually, it's funny you should say, is it very analytical? And yes. In fact, I'm talking about physics there um, and the physics of, of, of playing um, specifically, you know, in the areas of things like range um, because, you know, obviously at the end of the day, it is all physics and, you know, turning that physics into something we can think about when we're playing the instrument. Yeah. I guess you, you would call my approach to my embouchure and my technique, at least, you know, very, very analytical. Uh, and I guess even when I'm playing, well, even when I'm improvising, there's sheet music kind of and, and chord changes sort of mentally popping up in my brain. And so, OK, yes, I, I claim uh, full, full uh, technical, uh, you know, I, I plead guilty to being a very <laughs> technically minded, analytically minded player. Um, but I mean, that, that nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. You, <laughs> you know, know, yeah. It's, I mean, it's led in a lot of good places and made me an efficient practicer when I can, you know, afford the practice time. Uh, because, you know, I think about things a little bit differently. And I, you know, I, I, I come from the, 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 you know, for pros, yeah, you know, the touring pros, you, a lot of them practice two and three and four and five, whatever, infinity hours a day. Um, and those are, you know, the stories about, you know, people playing these crazy long hours. I just, I know, I have to admit to myself, I'm never going to have. And, and that might be something that, that we're missing, um, you know, in the, on the pedagogical side is acknowledging that for your, 
you know, serious amateurs or, you know, even your, you know, your, your pros who are balancing teaching or whatever other schedule, they don't have four or five hours to put in the instrument a day. Okay. So how can we take the half hour, 45, whatever it is that we have and maximize it and get us as close to where we would be with four, you know, how do we, out of every minute, you know, yeah. and I'm continually shocked at how cheaply people spend my time for me. Um, you know, people talk about mouthpieces, something you could talk about and make a decision in a matter of minutes or hours. They're like, you know, forget mouthpiece, you know, long tones, one hour every day. An hour a day to play long. I mean, that, that, if I had it, that'd be great, you know, but an hour of every day, um, I got kids, I got a job, I got, you know, stuff to do, um, exercise, you know, all these things that fit in um, and adding another hour onto my practice routine that may not even be an hour long. Like that's a very, very cavalier use of an hour of every darn day. You know, how yeah. do we get more efficient? You know, just like I'm, you know, you could try every mouthpiece on the planet. I'm trying to find a more efficient way to find the right one or design the right one. You know, how do we get more efficient with our practice time? And if we realistically have only X number of minutes or hours to, to put into it a day, you know, we should stop thinking like someone who has three or four or five hours to spend and start thinking about, you know, how can we get every minute to count? Um, yeah. And, you know, I think that's a valuable thing to, and I, I, that's, I, I've spent time thinking about that, you know, time when I can't be playing, if I'm just kind of driving along, whatever, listening to my podcast, I think about, you know, things that I've learned about technique, you know, how do I make it efficient and scalable for someone who, you know, has this much time to give, that's what I have. And, you know, how can I make the absolute, and I, I, I will say, I think I'm pretty good, you know, if I might toot my own horn, pretty good at getting the most out of the practice that I'm able to, to accommodate in my lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's that's a, a hard thing. I, I recently actually was coaching someone on uh, they they were a bass player, of all things, uh, but uh, she was having a lot of problems because of um, feeling like you know she wasn't as good as she should be. She has trouble understanding theory. She has you know all these different things, and you know I, I feel like I'm you know, is imposter imposter syndrome and stuff like that. And, I'm, and the first question I asked was like, "Well, are you working?" And her response was yes. I'm like, well, okay. Well, you're obviously good enough to play. So why are you stressing? You know, this isn't your full time gig. You're just playing for fun, but you're you're never at a loss for gigs. So maybe you need to take the pressure off of yourself. You don't need to understand theory like you just got your your uh, your doctorate at, at Berkeley. If you understand enough to play in a rock and roll band and that makes you happy, then okay, that's good for you. So let's let's take the pressure off of ourselves in terms of what you think you should know and just focus on what do you really need to know what are the skills you really need to have you know i can't say it i, I couldn't say it better taking that pressure off and you know and being realistic and and but and also just you know yeah being you know give giving yourself some love you know because yeah. she probably makes a lot of people very happy playing that bass in that rock band people are out there dancing people are enjoying the music she's enjoying herself and so you know like what's the problem you know I, and, and I think in the trumpet community, there's the opposite of that. There's this expectation that everyone should be able to play the Carnival of Venice variations and everyone should be able to play lead and everyone should be able to play, you know, but actually that the number of people who really effectively do all of those things, very, very small. Yeah. And some of the most, you know, you know, I wouldn't, I don't think Maynard Ferguson would get along very well with the Carnival of Venice on a cornet. Right. Yeah. And, you know, but he's amazing, you know, um, and I'd rather do one thing really well than be mediocre at a bunch of things, you know, 
but there's that, that that expectation that yeah okay i've taught you a song now learn it in all 12 keys well but it's usually only called in one or maybe two you know sure it'd be nice if i knew it in c sharp major but it's probably never going to happen so is that really well spent time yeah or could i involve you know invest that time in something else that that, that is you know um but yeah there's that expectation that every trumpet player should be able to do everything yeah right? but you know your, your favorite rock vocalist no, no one expects bon jovi to be on stage at the Met singing opera, right? No one would think that that was something that he was required to do. Well, how come then I'm supposed to be able to play the carnival variations, even though I'm a lead commercial player? Yeah. And how come I, I'm subtly made to feel less than because I can't, you know, don't effectively do this or that thing on the trumpet? You know, no one would, would, would go up to Bon Jovi and say, man, you suck. You, you, you know, you, you can't sing, you know, you can't do the traviata at the Met. What's wrong with you? Yeah, you better get back in that woodshed. No one says yeah. that, yeah. but they say it to us. You know? Well, you know, and that's that's a really interesting thing because uh, one of the things I've struggled with over the years has been sound. And you know, granted, you know, I can I I know that I can improve on that. Um, but you know, like you, primarily doing commercial music, and uh, you know, it's it's good enough to keep the gigs, but. You know, the the things that, that has been beaten into my head, yes, you know, regardless, you should have a core of your sound. You know, there, there should be there should be that that roundness or that brilliant you know, the combination of the brilliance and the the full overtones and things like that. That's that goes without saying. But you know, I don't need to sound like, you know, Bud Herseth. You know, that's not going to, you know, it, when you're playing, when you're, when you're in that, that third set and you're, you're, you're playing September on that, that bar gig, uh, which hopefully will come around again. Uh, into that. uh you know, I don't want to sound like Bud Herseth, much like, you know, if you're the, the vocalist, you don't want to sound like Luciano Pavarotti, uh, trying to sing Brick House. Yeah. You know, that, that's not, a brick house. Yeah. yeah that, that, that mighty, mighty. So it's that thing that, that we, you know, when you look at uh, other successful musical artists outside of the trumpet world, uh, particularly, you know, like you're saying Bon Jovi, you, know, you look look in the pop music world. I mean, there are people whose voices I would not consider to be particularly great voices like Bruce Springsteen, you know, not a great voice. But for what he's doing, you can't imagine anyone else doing his music and expressing his music and it's about the emotion that he puts into what he does and i think that we get so uh locked into this is the sound you must have and this is the way you must approach the horn as opposed to if you're a musician ultimately i mean especially like in in the commercial world and the and the jazz world and things like that it's so much about the emotion involved with it you know, you, classical world, yes, absolutely. You know that as well. But, but you know, it's about: Are you expressing an idea? Are you expressing an emotion? And does does your voice help you to do that, or does it hinder you yeah, in doing I, that? I completely agree with you. You know, and I, one thing I would like to see more students do, and more teachers elicit from students is not to immediately start fixing things, but to try and hear what the student wants their voice to sound like and then give them the tools to make it that way. You know, I think there's like one path, you, you know, you get the seven C, you, you're taught to buzz like this, you want to sound like this, then you upgrade actually a three C smaller than the seven C, but we're not going to open that can of worms. Uh, and, you know, you then to, you upgrade to a one and a half C and you have to become a conservatory player. You have to know Hummel and Haydn and you have to, know, you know, and this is the, this is the way, you know, and, 
Um, but what is that? What, if that student grew up listening to Man and Ferguson, that's what they want to sound like. Why, you know, and 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 so much of there's like you said the dogma that's in stone. This is what this is the way one learns, you know. Well, but what if I want to end up and say different things with my voice? What if the way I want to speak is a completely different language? You know, is there a different way that I should be training early on for that? I I don't know that. Probably yes. Um, but but how much do we as teachers or you know immediately start? We hear something. Oh, here's what we're going to change. You know, I sometimes think about suppose you isolated a middle G being held for a, a, you know, a whole note and it's airy and diffuse, you know, and you played that for a trumpet teacher like, oh, we got an embouchure and equipment and this and that and long tones and, you know, okay, but let's zoom out. And actually that was a held bar in the middle of a Chet Baker solo. He didn't suck, you know, yeah, like yeah. who would teach Chet Baker sound? Yeah. It's airy and it's not, it should be focused or dark. Or, no, it was, it's his sound, man. Yeah. And now we love him. And when we, in the context of his artistry, it's perfect. Who would want to play any other way? Yeah. You know, in that context. Yeah. But, but so, so often it's like, well, that doesn't, that doesn't sound like it adheres to the rigid orthodoxy. So we're going to beat it out of them. Yeah. Well, no, it's beautiful. And so, you know, what is your student, you know, what is this person, what is their inner voice? What's trying to come out and how do we support that with both pedagogy and equipment, you know, um, and so many students, they just, they come in with no idea or they have the idea beaten out of them. And then they just get sort of, you know, stuck in the mold. And I think there's a lot of joy out there to be found um, in finding your voice and then developing the technique and the equipment and the, the experience and the musicality to, you know, speak with that voice. Yeah. I mean, when you think about like you're, you're using the example of Chet, you think of any trumpet player, you, you create your Mount Rushmore of trumpet players, regardless of the style. Um, you can identify them by their sound. Yeah. You know, and because they all sound different. Absolutely. You know, you can take, you know, the, the, like the five greatest lead players, you know, that you would consider of the past or, you know, the present. I mean, you could, you can pick Gazzo's sound out. You know, if you, if you've studied trumpet, you can pick Gazzo's sound out. You can, you know, you can pick Wayne Bergeron's sound out. You can pick, you know, all of these different guys. You can, you, you listen, you go, that is that dude. You know, the classical world, same thing. The jazz world, same thing. You can tell the difference between Freddie and Clifford and Chet and Miles. They're just very unique and different sounds. But yet when you go into a, you know, more traditional uh, schooling situation, everyone needs to have this homogenous sound, you know, and, and it's just, it, it's really, it's kind of disheartening uh, to think about that. And then, you know, part of it, like, you, you know, we've kind of tying it all together. Uh, so much of it is, is tied in also to the, you know, it's the pedagogy and it's the, the equipment. Everybody is taught the same way and everybody is encouraged to play the same kind of gear. And there's, uh, I mean, granted now there, there are definitely more teachers who are, are willing to open, be open to things, but I still hear and see so many times, like, you know, I'm going to, you know, uh, just recently I saw a post on, on one of the forums and it's like, oh, I'm just, I'm going to be starting school next year. And my, my professor wants me to switch to, uh, a Bach 3C. Now this professor has never had a lesson with this person, 
and you know really doesn't know much about what this person wants to do with their career but if you're going to be in my trumpet studio this is what you're going to play and it's like that's I, I actually have more than once I, I have a perfect uh, a Bach blank like the ability to machine what looks like exactly like a Bach on the outside more than once I put all sorts of different geometries inside of it for people to pass inspection from the brass section leader of their drum corps or their their uh, you know professor or teacher or whatever um, because for, yeah because they're trying to stuff them into that same gear yeah and and there's nothing wrong with Bach I'm not saying that's no, no. Please, it's okay. my, my disclaimer to people but but you know it's the, whether it's that or a monad or it's a Yamaha what, whatever it is but when you have one person who says you have to play this gear uh, that's just that that that's defeating the purpose I think of of being an educator I agree to your point about Bach you I'll say nothing bad about Bach gear I mean those designs were a hundred years old. If someone's still taking my design seriously in a hundred years, if I weren't dead, I'd feel pretty darn good about that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like there's, I mean, geez, that, that three C that goes back. The DNA is a hundred years old. How, what can you say that's bad about that? If it's yeah. lasted a hundred years and is, is still relevant at all. Like, yeah. Holy cow. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's the, it's the standard for a reason. You know, the, yeah, the, yeah, no, there's a lot right about it, yeah. you know, and whatever quibbles, you know, that we might iron out or whatever, like it's still the test of time. So yeah, no, yeah. no, no shade directed there at all. Yeah. But um, it, it just, it's the ability though, to accept that things do change. And then, you know, as I was saying before, you know, as, as one thing changes in, in a system, there has to be compensation in all the other parts of the system. So as technology has improved, that's a create that created a change as the demands of a player have changed that creates a change so you can't always rely on on what worked a hundred years ago to without changing it to have it still work in the current environment but it doesn't mean you throw the baby out with the bathwater it's you know you, what do i need to tweak you know so it it's not uh, you know, like that's what going, bringing it back to your, your Vencad and, and the, the approach that you're using with, with what you're doing. Sometimes it's just that one subtle shift. It's moving that high point. It's just, you know, opening up the, the, uh, cup volume a little bit, you know, it, it's, it's keeping the same cup volume, but, you know, expanding the sides and, and bringing up the, the depth, you know, so it's all these little things that can be done. It, it's rarely a, a wholesale change. It's just these subtle shifts but they work in a synergistic fashion. So you get a much more profound uh, impact by making these small changes. And, and, you know, and let's never lose, you know, I never want to be told I'm guilty of making people focus on gear to the exclusion of music. You know, let's never focus, let's never lose focus on the music that we're trying to make and the voice we're trying to carry into our performance space, whatever it may be, professional, amateur or otherwise. You know, your earlier point about playing September in the third set, you know, how much more money do players earn playing September in a cover band than, uh, you know, soloists earn playing, uh, you know, the Hummel in front of an orchestra? That only happens a handful of times every year. But in every city, you know, in every country, there's there's a dozen cover bands playing September, you know. But how come that's not part of the literature that we practice as students, Right. right? We, you know, the hide, we, you know, we, we try to learn, you know, the hummel or the da, 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 da. that's how we learn phrasing in the hide. Well, how come we're, when we're doing articulation, how, how come it's not, you know, you know, like from September. Why don't we ever practice that as one of our, the etudes or the pieces of literature that we're 
because you're much more likely to get hired to play that than you are to play the Hummel. Sure, some some people do that, and I'm not knocking. It's important. It's beautiful music, and I love all the all the concerti. You know, all of them. I love them, and I love listening to them. And I've tried to butcher them on occasion on my own, but you know, but I know I've been paid plenty of times to show up and play September and, and all that other you know brick house. I you know, my my kids have been fed on brick house more than once. You know, yeah. Like so, so how can we don't learn those things as part of our playing? You know, when we're when we're in high school, because you know, a high school player can play. Bah, you know yeah and there's intervals there and there's there's you know how come that's not part of it i think it should be because it's more likely that that's what's going to be required of you if you're trying to perform um odds wise um so yeah you know let's let's aim at the things that we want to do performance wise and yeah focus on those incremental changes and those those synergistic like you said things that where everything you know affects everything else yeah well that's, that's interesting um Paul Barron uh, recently released a book of uh, Broadway excerpts. And oh, sorry, I'm ducking on a frame here. I've got there my copy go. right here in front of you. Yeah, and that and that's so great. And you know, uh, Paul was a, a guest on this the show, and and it was a great conversation. Great guy. Uh, but uh, you know, the whole idea is like, yeah, you know, there's there's no literature. You know, if you're a trumpet player and you're you're going to try and make a, a living doing Broadway. There are no excerpts, you know, you, you don't have you don't have the stuff to practice. And it's a it's it's a different language than than classical. And, and I think the same thing. I mean, the, someone out there in, in the trumpet uh, gurus hang uh, world that's listening right now. We need a book of uh, cover tune excerpts. We need uh, some some yeah. funk excerpts and, and stuff like that. And, you know, I think that would be the perfect the perfect little thing to do, because. I get so many of us that, you know, if we're not full-time uh, session musicians in New York or L.A. or playing on Broadway or playing in the symphony, most of us that are playing, that's the kind of stuff that we're doing more more times than not. So, you know, let, let's – somebody get on that, please. Somebody, yeah, and, I agree. Uh, I think that would be a great book. You know, yeah. the, the, the uh, you know, cover band excerpts or, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, and some of them are quite technical. They're not – it's not that they're easy. Some oh, no, no. Some of them are quite technical and a lot of them are quite high relative to a lot of the classical literature out there and the tessitura you know you're above the staff an awful lot yeah you know if we if we want to play this stuff why aren't we practicing for it yeah well, i actually had a friend who uh, had talked to me about working with him he he's a, a a bass player and guitar player who's published a couple of uh, method books and he wanted me to work with him on doing uh, a, a similar book for for horns and like analyzing the different styles, you know, the, okay, this is kind of the Chicago sound and this is the, you know, Jerry Hay sound. And this is, you know, this, and we started to work on, it's like, eh, eh, I don't have the time to deal with this right now. <laughs> so, uh, so somebody else can, can jump on that, but I, I do want a commission on that. Uh, so anyway, I've got a couple, a uh, couple segments that we need to get through, uh, today before we, we wrap up our time. The first one oh. is, uh, is, uh, segment we call Gear Up, and Gear Up is about the gear you're using, and I'm sure you're going to talk about all of the uh, the wonderful mouthpieces that you play. But I also want to know about the, you know the, your horn, and and uh, we already got it. We got a good idea of, of how you approach gear, uh, but let's just talk about what you're using and, and why you use that specific setup. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, well, the, the the my main mouthpiece uh, right now for my commercial work is the uh, the Venture LC2. Which will be available soon. This is this is in prototype form. It's in top and uh, uh, screw top and backboard. Um, and so uh, the lead line, a little advertisement for it behind me, 
um, is geared to be a complete line of for people who play commercial lead, you know, scream and stuff, but also Broadway shows and stuff, which require, you know, punches of power, um, different sizes, different, different types of cups. Um, and that's being tested now by a bunch of expert testers around the world. Paul Barron is one of them. Um, uh, he's a very, you know, obviously a very great uh, accomplished player who you know, needs the high stuff, but also needs to be very uh, musical and, and have great articulation and precision. So yeah, this is a prototype. Um, we're, we're trying to match the right back bore with the right uh, cup. And I've done it acoustically in different ways. And now we're testing, mixing, and matching. So this is what I've settled on as my own. Obviously, I have to play venture equipment. You got to eat the dog food, as they say. Uh, and of course, so that's obviously I'm playing my own, you know, my own stuff that I, I make. Um, so that's what I use for my, uh, you, know, you know, stuff. My primary horn for many years, this is my Jerome Callet. Uh, jazz. I bought it with my communion money when I was 13 years old in 1992. Um, and uh, it's not much of it remains. Uh, it's been overhauled once by can stool and bits replaced with red rot here and there, but I, I love it. Um, and uh, I just picked up recently a Van Lar Finley that I've been starting to work in rotation. It's a little bit tighter playing, uh, very efficient. I like it. Um, and it is the most, I don't have, it's not within arm's reach here, but it is the most gorgeous. It's the, it's the brush gold plate, which is the most gorgeous, you know, oh, I don't want to get yeah. into an argument here, but anyone who doesn't believe that's the beautiful finish in the musical world, we're got, you know, I've got a bone to pick. No, it's, it's, it's really gorgeous horn plays beautifully. Uh, the Van Lar Finley. Yeah. So that, you know, I'm all about, you know, the, 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 the lead, you know, efficient commercial equipment, yeah. you know, me, you know, medium to medium, large bore. Um, so yeah, those are my two horn, my two primary B flat horns. That you know, the 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 LC two is my current venture mouthpiece of choice. Although obviously it's easier for me to change mouthpieces than most people. If I get frustrated with something, I throw it away and I go machine something else. Um, so yeah, that's that's the gear that I'm playing on these days. Okay, cool. Yeah, well, that sounds like a, a good setup, especially you know doing the beach thing. Uh, so. Yeah, you got to have the sound for that, man. You know, it, it, it's got to have have the shimmer for sure. So, all right. Well, cool. Um, now, let's uh, let's get to this the final portion of our show. This is a uh, segment that's brought to uh, to us by our good friends uh, at Robinson's Remedies, the Robinson's Remedies Rapid Fire Round. Robinson's Remedies will give you that rapid relief with those sore and swollen chops. Uh, so, uh, we're going to ask a few Quick questions. Uh, just want your quickest answer to these questions are all over the place, kind of like me sometimes. <laughs> all right, so here we go. First question: Who's the biggest influence on your life that is not a trumpet player? I guess that would have to be my dad. Um, okay. Uh, what's your favorite book? My favorite book. Oh God. Um, well, right now it's the fundamentals of musical acoustics, but um, oh God, what, you know what books, not one book, a series of books, the, 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 the Star Wars novels that came after the movies, I read those, just, so, just everyone that came out and uh, just, that was my escape during college, during stressful times, you know, yeah. sci-fi in general, but those in particular. Okay, cool. Uh, what's the worst movie you've ever seen? God, the worst movie I've ever seen. Whew. Well, the, the 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 recent Cats uh, remake in, in movie form was 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 
not not my cup of tea. How about that? Uh, I did not see that. Uh, at first, I was kind of intrigued by it, but then uh, I don't know. I just never never. That musical is among my least favorite of the uh, the you know Weber canon, and you know some of the stuff I love. That one I do not care for, and that movie was whew. a little painful. <laughs> a little painful. All right. Well, maybe I'll save it for a night when I just feel like torturing myself. Um, if you weren't a trumpet player, what would you want to be? What would I want to be? Oh, it's funny. I, I, I guess, uh, um, I thought about a career in medicine once, uh, you know, I actually took all the, 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 uh, coursework through a pre-med and I took the MCAT and did pretty well. I just, you know, ended up in engineering school instead and trumpet playing. So yeah, yeah that, that my, my other life, I'm on the engineering road now. One of my alternate lives was going to North Texas State and going with Maynard's band. And the other alternate life, I guess, would have been a medical career. Yeah. Here I am doing doing engineering and trumpet. Okay. Well, you know, hey, it's a good place to be. Um, what's your favorite drink? My favorite drink? I like everything sweet. So sweet I guess tea? we're talking. Sweet tea? Are you a sweet tea guy? Not sweet tea, but more like give me a good fruit punch. All you right. Know? That's it, you know, and if I'm drinking alcohol, a strawberry, a, a, a frou-frou, fluffy strawberry daiquiri with an umbrella on top. Oh, you're, you're one of those umbrella guys. Uh, oh, man, I, you know, my, my girlfriend, is. she'll drink, you know, scotch, you know, you know, straight up. And and so we go to the restaurant and back when that was a thing and, you know, we'll order a scotch and a strawberry daiquiri. Yeah. And they'll send the expediter out who hasn't taken the order but is delivering the drinks, invariably puts the scotch in front of me and puts the... The, the big burly man and she's like you know a southern belle and they, she gets the umbrella drink i'm like nope nope <laughs> <laughs> all right cool all right so you could uh have a dinner party and invite any three living people anyone in the world who would you want to invite dinner party with three living people wow that's a that's a tough one well i guess uh I think President Obama, former President Obama, would be good company. I think uh, probably we have to have a trumpet person in there, right? So uh, uh, let's have, uh, well, Wayne Bergeron. You want to pick his brain about the Maynard days and all that stuff. And then uh, we need um, someone to say something profound. So let's see. There was... uh, who am I going to get for my third person? I'm just, I'm just trying to throw out all the map here. Like you said, being scattered all over the everywhere is, um, God, I'm like drawing a complete blank. How about, uh, my philosophy professor from college, Alexander George. Cause I know he'd, he'd say some crazy stuff. Okay. There you go. All right. So that's a random roll of dice right there. There you go. All right. So you got three more chairs and you're going to fill them with any three people from history. Let's get George Washington, the father of our country, to see how much of it was myth and how much of it was a real deal. Okay. I think we have to bring back Maynard because, uh, you know, obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, and then the well, let's 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 uh, let's get Nelson Mandela. Oh man, that's because not, uh, you yeah. know obviously a profound figure, someone who stood for 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 social justice. And someone who also discovered what it was like both to suffer for his cause, but also to attain this status and respect and has seen both sides of the coin. How about that? Yeah, man, that sounds like a great dinner. 
All right. Next question. Lacquer plated or raw? Uh, silver plated. Right. I, I would go lacquer over raw. Okay. Raw, raw has too many maintenance problems. Uh, I, my, you know, I love my gold plated Van Lar. I love my silver plated stuff. But yeah, give them the lacquer versus raw. I would go lacquer. All right. What's your favorite quote? Quote. Um, let's say uh, there was a Donizetti quote. Um, I, can I can I read this to you because sure. it's really profound and I want to get it right. Sure, we'll we'll do that. He had written uh, it was La Lucia d'Amore, the you know um, the famous opera, and he said uh, in a letter to his librettist who was going to write you know the words to this this thing. He said, "I am obliged to write an opera in fourteen days. I give you a week to do your share, but I warn you." We have a German prima donna, a tenor who stutters, a buffo with a voice like a goat, and a worthless French basso. Still, we must cover ourselves with glory. <laughs> and the, the, the part of that that I love is, you know, we must cover ourselves with glory. And honestly, that quote, and I, I hate to like overblow the answer, but um, life is all about adversity, right? And it's about making the best of bad circumstances, life giving you lemons, making lemonade. And you know, this is one of the greatest operas, one of my favorites. And the sausage making behind the scenes isn't glorious. It's not glamorous. It's him, you know, having, you know, two weeks to put together an opera from nothing to write it. One of the greatest works in, 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 the, in the canon. And he has this, this cast he's not thrilled about who's going to premiere it, you know. And he pulls it off because we know this. This is one of the, the, the you know, one of the beloved, you know, gems in the, in, the, in, the, in the opera, you know, repertory. And... It came from this place of like, this is insane and it's a little bit ridiculous and this is never going to work, but still we will cover ourselves in glory. And he did. That's yeah. what that, that quote. Yeah, I, I always forget the first bit of it. I know he's making fun of his, his people, but, you know, still given, you know, all the nonsense that happens on a daily basis and a brass shipper who won't deliver on time and a machine where this part just went down and, you know, customers that say this and that still we must cover ourselves in glory here at Venture. Oh. I think I think about that that little bit. Yes, we must cover ourselves in glory, even though things are you know silly, adverse, whatever. We're going to cover ourselves in glory. That that should be a T-shirt. <laughs> uh, all right, what is your greatest fear? Oh, I I have the FOMO, the fear of missing out. You know, I'm always worried that am I doing this? You know, we have one life to live. I'm always worried. Am I doing it right? Am I going to regret something? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm with you on that. Um, you could be granted one superpower. What would it be? Oh gosh. Is time travel. Okay. Is that a yeah, that count? Yeah, that I want time travel. Time travel. I want to be able to go back and get it right. I want to see other stuff in history, you know? Okay, cool. I want to go to 1955 or 55 and go to the enchantment under the sea dance. Here, 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 Marty McFly play Johnny D. Good. That's there you go. That, that would be a good one. Yeah. yeah. Bring my horn with me. Do some backups. There you know. Yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah. Do it, doing it all with a little DeLorean. Uh, what aspect of trumpet playing do you feel is the most overrated? Most overrated? Well, I'm supposed to say high notes, but I think that they're not overrated because that's how I get hired. Yeah. There you um, go. I think the thing that's most overrated is the super fast bravura single tonguing, you know, a la Carnival of Venice. I mean, it's, it's amazing. I love it. I love to listen to it. I don't think we all have to do it. And most of the stuff we get hired to play doesn't require it. Okay. All right. What do you feel is the most underrated? The most underrated. Hmm. Well, I guess what I would say is 
Um, I think intonation is underrated. We don't spend enough time talking about it. You know, um, we don't, our instrument is made out of tune. It's, it's, not, it's, it's not an equal tempered instrument. It's just intonation. And we're trying to fit it in, into an equal tempered world. And we only pay it passing, you know, mention every now and then. It's hard to play in tune. We know that, but we don't talk enough about how to practice to do it. Okay, cool. All right. Um, speaking of your time traveling abilities, you can go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice about music. What would it be? It would be uh, play what you love, what you're listening to right now. Don't feel bad about it. You know, wear it proudly, you know, embrace it and, and be you. Cover yourself in glory. Cover yourself in glory. And what piece of advice would you give your younger self about life? What would you give my younger self about life? Don't sweat what other people say about you. Don't think too much about what other people are trying to get to, you know, you get one life to live, you know, do it your way, you know, and, and don't, you know, don't, don't keep up with the Joneses in, in any way. All right. And the final question, what, uh, what do you want your legacy to be? Hmm. That's a, that's a big one. Um, you know, I want my children to remember me as a good dad who cared about them and uh, supported them in their endeavors. And I would like the whatever, whoever's going to remember me to remember me as someone who really valued, this is going to sound weird, automation, right? The stuff that I build is all about making people's lives easier. So whether it be the machines I put out in the field that people are using now in production or whether it be the mouthpieces that I'm putting out there, I hope, I hope they understand that, uh, you know, I like making machinery and computers do things to make people's life just that little bit better. All right, cool. Well, Doug, thank you so much, man, for spending time with me today. This has just been an absolute blast. I was able to geek out, able to, uh, you know, laugh about some stuff. And, you know, like I said earlier, it's that, you know, finding those mutual points that we can, um, relate to. So, you know, our loves for trumpets, high notes and, uh, <laughs> and gear. So, um, I'm really looking forward to seeing what you do with venture and with your other ventures that are going to be coming up in the future, because I know that you're a guy who's got lots of ideas and not just ideas, but you have a passion to bring those to reality. So, um, Jose, thanks so much for having me on. This has uh, been an incredible honor. I mean, I know I know the list of uh, people that have been on uh, this this podcast, and people will be like, "Who the heck is this guy?" Yeah. But uh, I really appreciate you having me on, and and uh, been a real pleasure chatting with you. Well, it's been my pleasure, and I know this has been educational. So, uh, if you uh, have any questions about the stuff that Doug's doing, please make sure you check out the links in the show notes. Uh, go to to Venture Mouthpieces and uh, definitely download that VanCAD software because, man, if you want to if you want to spend a few hours like diving down a rabbit hole of designing mouthpieces, that's the way to do it. It's, it beats uh, beats a PS2 or whatever those new playstations are these days. Uh, so it, it's, it's great. You should, yeah, you need some background music for that. So you can make that like a video game, you know, de design a perfect mouthpiece. So anyway, thanks for joining us on this episode of the Trumpet Gurus Hang podcast. And as always, peace and slide grease. Wheeze out. Thanks for hanging with us today. This podcast is all about creating deeper connections through our mutual love of music and the trumpet life. 
Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and also like and share this episode with a friend. We want to see the hang grow for show. Please support our sponsors and consider becoming a personal supporter of this podcast as well. Remember, for less than the price of a bottle of olive oil a month, you can keep this podcast moving smoothly. The Trumpet Guru's Hang is recorded at the Candy Factory, a co-working space and social club located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Jose Johnson is the executive producer. Post-production editing is by Mitch Bowers. Our opening theme song was composed and performed by Lexi Signal. And our closing theme music comes courtesy of The Greatest Funeral Ever. Incidental music is by Ethan Swayze and Jose Johnson. Graphic design by Ann Kirby of The Sweet Corps. The Trumpet Guru's Hang podcast is produced in collaboration with the So Good Lancaster Media Group. Uh-huh.